This is Wade's World, where we talk to the most interesting people in the world on KABF 88.3, the voice of the people. You want to see how the other half lives? You want to see how we get around? Why don't you come visit me on the east side of town? This is Wade Rathke, and you're listening to Wade's World, a voice of the people program. Welcome to the east side of town so that we can talk about how the other half lives and what life is like here living in Wade's World, whether that's the east side of Little Rock, Greenville, or New Orleans, or on Acorn Radio in Nairobi, Bengaluru, Bristol, or Bombay, points east and west, where we are either rebroadcast or live-streamed at kabf.org, wamf.org, or acornradio.org. A podcast will be available to this show on those websites and at www.chieforganizer.org. You know the story on Wade's World. We talk to the most interesting people in the world, and today we're talking to Rosemarie Day, the founder and CEO of Day Health Strategies and former chief operating officer for the Massachusetts Health Connector and Medicaid programs. Rosemary Day has written a book called Marching Towards Coverage, How Women Can Lead the Fight for Universal Health Care. Welcome to Wade's World, uh, Rosemary. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're all for marching towards coverage, but uh, we were just talking before the show started. Health is in the news now, isn't it? There is. <laughs> yes. It's been contentious uh, since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, and uh, various sides have tried to nick it and bleed it. But uh, what's your view on uh, the results so far of the Affordable Care Act over the last decade? Well, it's the most significant piece of health care coverage expansion that we've had since uh, Medicare and Medicaid were created in 1965. So, um, and that was a long time ago, as my kids would say, like, you know, (laughs) a different century. Um, So the Affordable Care Act, um, which was enacted in 2010, is responsible for ensuring more than 20 million more people and has the potential to do even more. Um, It brought down our uninsurance rate in this country um, significantly. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, the number of uninsured people is rising again, no thanks to the Trump administration and how much they've undermined the law. But the basic framework of the law was successful. Um, It just didn't go far enough. And some of the passage of the law is often cited to be the experience in Massachusetts where you were one of the sort of uh, mechanics that built that system, right? Yes. Uh, Yes. And I mean, the Affordable Care Act was actually based on the model that we implemented four years earlier. Uh, So back in 2006, um, we created the first uh, state-run health insurance exchange, and we um, subsidized the health care that was uh, on that exchange. So people who were working um, but didn't have insurance through their employers had a place to go, a safe and trusted place to go to buy insurance, and they could get a subsidy for that insurance if they qualified with um, having moderate incomes. And then if um, and then the state also enacted a mandate, a requirement to purchase insurance because they wanted to make sure that those who could afford to do so did and helped create a healthier insurance pool. So it was a whole framework that we we implemented. And with that framework, we actually got to near universal coverage, meaning that 
about 2% of our population was uninsured, only 2%. And that's the, that's the most that any state has been able to accomplish in the U.S. Was the mandate controversial in Massachusetts as well? You know, when I took the job, I actually, uh, I was worried that it, it was going to be. And in fact, I even told my husband, like, I, I, I'm going to take this job, but I'm, I may not have a job in a year if people, <laughs> if people. <laughs> and now that's true for everybody, Rosemary. <laughs> well, that's true. But I, I didn't know, you know, we, Massachusetts, uh, you know, leans blue politically, but, you know, sure. we were, were bordered by New Hampshire, um, where, you know, the motto is, live free or die. And I thought this could get ginned up on talk radio and people will hate the mandate. But it turned out that because we implemented it, I think in a pretty benevolent way, and the subsidies were really more the important part that was um, being advertised and rolled out initially, um, that that allowed for there to become some buy-in, like literally to the merits of the law. And frankly, you know, then Governor Romney did a good job of explaining that he believed people should not be, as he called them, free riders um, in the system. Again, if they could afford to buy insurance, they needed to be part of the pool and not just show up at the ER expecting care for free um, if, in fact, they could have afforded health insurance. So that was the principle that he espoused. So Kind of culturally, I think we got to a place where people saw uh, the benefits of the law and um, and supported it in its totality. Were there significant penalties uh, for not provide, yeah. not joining the program? Or? Well, the the penalties were set. Um, the principle was that they would be half the cost of the lowest um, priced bronze plan. So um, the idea was that they needed to be significant enough that it it got your attention, but that it was still much more uh, of a value proposition to buy the insurance um, in the first place. And so didn't want to exceed the cost of of insurance, didn't want to be overly punitive, um, but but again, didn't want it to just be like $5 where people could poo-poo it, you know. Sure. And, uh, you know, one of the things that was so part of the campaign to get rid of the individual mandate on the Affordable Care Act was was the penalties, which, you know, was somewhat surprising because the penalties weren't that significant on ACA either, were they? No, they weren't. I mean, again, if you're if you're extremely low, and I don't want to, um, you know, say <laughs> say that it, it, it didn't it, it still would get people's attention. Um but it turns out that um, that that really wasn't the motivator for people to get coverage. The motivator is that people actually need health insurance. And exactly. if there's a subsidy, you know, if there's a subsidy available, then people um, avail themselves of that once they they know about it and they will buy insurance. And that that's really been the driving force, as we've seen with the um, ACA coverage. In uh, your book, you make the uh, fine distinctions, which are important given what we read and hear in politics these days, between universal care and care for all and a number of other sort of political proposals. So Affordable Care Act is really not universal care, is it? Uh, No, it was not not designed to absolutely cover everyone. Um, I mean, as of now, we still have 4 million kids who do not have health insurance coverage. And um, those gaps exist 
set for reasons separate and apart of what the ACA was trying to address. Um, you know, and I and I point that out in the book that really we ought to be enrolling every child at birth in some basic form of coverage instead of having to rely on parents figuring out a complicated system. Um, so, so the ACA was was targeted toward the group of folks who didn't have um, employer-sponsored insurance but made too much money to qualify for Medicaid, and that's about um, 8% of our population, so a very targeted. And then it also expanded the Medicaid program um, and tried to bring um, all of the states into the same level of Medicaid coverage. Unfortunately, a previous Supreme Court case um, basically turned that uh, responsibility um, or opportunity, I guess, however you want to call it, um, back to the states and didn't allow the federal government to set that um, universal standard for the for the country. So, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because that means that as, because it was left a state option, um, a bunch of states chose not to um, expand their Medicaid program. As um, as of today, twelve states that have not yet expanded Medicaid, even though the federal government was funding it 100%. Um, and they, they chose not to, um, I think, as an outright defiance um, of what President Obama was trying to accomplish. And sadly, most of those states are in the South and have been um, extremely hard hit by coronavirus. And I'm sure we'll get to that. <laughs> no doubt. But uh, it's also... Uh not only did they shun President Obama, but their own citizens when uh, voters in, say, in Oklahoma. And, you, and let me tell you, I've spent a lot of time in Oklahoma over my lifetime. You don't get much redder than Oklahoma. And that's saying, you know, I spent a lot of time in Arkansas, Mississippi and Louisiana. They voted overwhelmingly to extend the uh, Affordable Care Act to that state. And that's been true in a number of states that have actually been willing to see this uh, go to their citizens, haven't it? Yes, um, that's been that was some of the best news that came out of uh, 2020 prior to the um, election this fall. But uh, yes, uh, both Oklahoma and Missouri, through ballot initiative, voted to expand um, Medicaid to their populations, and um, you know that was in a tremendous uh, grassroots effort that was very successful. And I've tried to draw. Uh, people's attention to those efforts because they're of those 12 states that haven't expanded Medicaid, four of them do have a ballot initiative option. So there are still some states that could, uh, you know, if we could organize enough, we could um, we could help them too. Absolutely. We're talking to Rosemary Day, who's written a book, Marching Towards Coverage, How Women Can Lead the Fight for Universal Healthcare. Now, President-elect Biden talked about the public option. Uh, you want to try to help me sort through for the listeners the difference between Medicare for all, the public option, and the Affordable Care Act? Because I know sure. you spent a lot of time in your book doing it, so <laughs> I leave this to you to summarize quickly for our listeners. Sure. So um, the, what I talk about in the book is there's there's a continuum um, the, of, of coverage options, and uh, to to one side, and I guess I should probably say to the far left would be um, the Medicare for all option, um, and then a little more towards the middle is the public option, and then a little to the right of that would be the Affordable Care Act. But these are still all 
very much more to the left, you know, in totality than um, just staying with the status, what had been the status quo, which is just let people um, who are lucky enough to have jobs get their coverage there and, you know, um, ignore everybody else. <laughs> so Live free and so, die, as you mentioned earlier, well, yes. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the Medicare for All end, that is basically taking um, the idea of the Medicare program, which um, is for 65 and older folks, which actually is universal health care if you're old enough. Um, and it is run by the government, which some people don't seem to fully grasp when they say, take the government out of my Medicare. I know, but, one of the classic quotes. <laughs> I know. One of the Tea Party will always be remembered for that line, some poor soul. Go ahead. Yeah. So um, so the idea is that you take a program that has shown uh, proven itself to be popular in a bipartisan fashion um, and you use that as the model for providing health care to um, the rest of uh, the you know generations. And so so that it would become the program um, of health care coverage that you would take private insurance companies out of it. You would take employers out of it and you would say, hey, we're going to have, you know, something like an expanded payroll tax um, to cover everybody cradle to grave um, with health insurance. And it wouldn't even, you know, it would just be a different model because it would be totally a government program. Um, Again, some people, when they say Medicare for all, don't mean it exactly as Medicare is run today for over 65. They mean a different version, but they just know that if they say Medicare, it's kind of code for this kind of government program in the U.S. Um, So so that's that's one idea. But again, as I said, it takes employers and private insurers out. And that gives a lot of voters um, heart palpitations. So while they may, you know, vast majority of people say, yes, health care should be a right. And yes, I support Medicare for all. If you ask a follow up question and say, OK, but if um, you lose the insurance you have today, like you no longer are allowed to get that, what do you think? And you start to see. Um, a decline in how many people support Medicare for all because they don't want to be told that the insurance they have today is no longer available to them, even if it's not great insurance. There's still a lot of people who prefer the devil they know, I guess, to the devil they don't. Exactly. And, and frankly, there's a tremendous amount of distrust of the of the U.S. government. Um, uh, and so the there, it, it would take a lot of convincing um, to get people to truly embrace um, losing what they have today. Um, so it, it always depends on where you where you start. And if you if you don't have good coverage, again, Medicare for all may sound more appealing. But if you have decent coverage, um, then you know you're less inclined to throw out the baby with the bathwater to push another metaphor. So public <laughs> option, public option is something that kind of tries to um, find a compromise place, which is that you would create a Medicare-like option and sell it to people who want to buy it and potentially do that through the health insurance exchanges. And you um, give people access to a Medicare-like program, but it's their choice. If they want to keep their um, job-sponsored insurance, they can keep it. But if they want to go buy this coverage, they can buy it. And that is a really big departure from the ACA, which was really designed to just fill gaps. So if you had insurance through your job, you actually had to keep that insurance. You did not have the option to leave that insurance and go buy something 
on the exchange. You had to stay with your employer. So the public option creates a middle ground between where the ACA is and where Medicare for All is. And that's important. Uh, I mentioned uh, to Rosemary Day, who we're talking to about her new book, Marching Towards Healthcare, that uh, I represent, I end up bargaining union contracts for many low-wage workers in nursing homes and community health facilities for uh, differently abled uh, citizens. And in some cases, you know, big national companies like ResCare, I mean, one unit has 500 workers, and I get all the information. There'll be one person covered, if that, by the insurance they offer because the deductibles run five, 6000 plus you're allowed to charge 9% of wages for the premiums. And frankly, people can't afford it and know that, I mean, it's not even cat- catastrophic care, really. I mean, um, they're willing, they were willing to pay the penalties, but they also are not uh, as easily availed to the marketplace. And as I understand it, in Massachusetts, there was a cap on deductibles, which didn't emerge as part of the Affordable Care Act, did it? Well, there, there is there is a cap actually on on deductibles through the ACA, but it's nowhere um, near as low of a cap. So, um, so Massachusetts really did um, take away kind of the the brunt of of the harm that really high deductibles can do, um, and and so that was not fully replicated with the Affordable Care Act. Same thing, we have more generous subsidies, and that wasn't. Um, replicated with the national version of the ACA. Do you recall what the cap was in Massachusetts? Um, I think initially it was like 3000 I think um, that's what I've heard. Um, yeah. And, and the cap on the Affordable Care must be 7000 or what? Yeah, it's much higher. Um, I, I mean, don't remember this. Yeah, but it's definitely much higher. And, and Like I say, I know I have companies that charge over six, so... <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just assume there's no cap because once you go that high and you're talking about workers who are hardly making $10 an hour, you know, they're working for their health insurance. We also have this uh, terrible situation, and you referred to it a minute ago, that when it comes to employer-based insurance, there are millions of workers because of the pandemic and unemployment who've lost that insurance now. What does oh, that yeah. do to this climate? Well, it's absolutely devastating. And, and, you know, I point out in the book, it does not have to be this way. Other countries that are not as wealthy as our country have created universal health care. And they, they do that and, and expect that everybody's going to be covered. So when you, when you go crashing into a pandemic, as this world has, it does not have to be as painful as it is here in the U.S. When, when you have you know, job loss due to the pandemic, you don't also have to lose your health care. And in every other country, that's the case. They've separated the health care coverage from the jobs. And, and that's, that's vital. And we really, really need to move in that direction. Other than unionized construction workers, I know a few situations where people have portable health care. Uh, yeah, it's 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 really not. I mean, people. Well, you know, the fact that there's COBRA if you lose your job I means people with pre-existing conditions could still get some kind of coverage, but they pay for it 100 percent out of pocket. And once you've lost your job, you really can't afford that. You don't have the money. I mean, I've, I've had right. to explain what COPRA is a million times. And, you know, I, it's hard to get the energy to tell people this is a benefit. Uh, I just can't do it. I mean, because it really yeah. isn't. 
We've been talking to Rosemary Day, who's uh, the author of a new book called Marching Towards Coverage, How Women Can Lead the Fight for Universal Health Care. So, Rosemary, we need somebody to lead this fight. And you'd think with the COVID emergency and people losing their insurance and everything else, somebody would be leading it. How about women? <laughs> so I was so inspired by the women's marches. Um, and the, I was in D.C. for the first one and saw the phenomenal power of, of peaceful protest and people coming together who'd never even seen themselves as activists, but saw that they did not want the country moving in the direction um, that it was once Donald Trump was elected. And so I was so struck by that power and that energy, and I felt that if we could replicate that, you know, and people said after the march, what's next? And, of course, the answer is to vote, to run for office. But for me, the answer was to write this book and to show women, <laughs> again, who, who may not see themselves as activists, that, you know, the personal is political. And if we come together, you know, we are still predominantly the caregivers. We make 80 percent of the health care decisions at the family level. Um, you know, we are, quote unquote, the chief medical officer of our homes. But we don't wield that power, uh, you know, at the national level. And that's what needs to change, because our priorities are not um, matched by what the nation is prioritizing. And we need to change that. And I, and if enough women come together, and that can be across party lines, we can demand that our country take a better direction. And what do you think is likely to happen with this matter now before the Supreme Court and how women might react one way or another? So I was encouraged, honestly, this week um, with the, the questioning that came from Chief Justice Roberts and, um, and even Brett Kavanaugh that suggested that they don't see this case as something that ought to overturn the entire Affordable Care Act, that it ought to be more narrowly construed and just look at the question of the individual mandate. But, um, but there's no guarantees. You know, we know from 2020 being such a crazy year that uh, that you can't you can't count on anything. So well, you certainly we, can't count on Justice Kavanaugh. <laughs> the one so, thing we've learned in his short tenure so far as a justice is uh, I wouldn't put my money there. So where we can put our money um, is where uh, where Georgia is right now, where there are two Senate seats that if those went to Democrats, then Mitch McConnell would lose control of the Senate and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris could push forward a health care agenda um, that would build upon the success of the ACA and protect the ACA for once and for all by restoring that individual mandate um, dollar amount. It could even be one dollar, honestly. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be hardly anything. But if they put that uh, dollar value back in place, then the case before the Supreme Court would be moot, as in taken off the table, and we wouldn't have to wait until June to see what they decide. It would be irrelevant. Well, and we need more of their decisions to be irrelevant. Uh, that's certainly <laughs> true in this case and many others. And certainly when when the Affordable Care Act was passed, and I'm sure this is, as I understand the case in Massachusetts, there's no legislation that people don't understand once there's experience has to be improved. And in this case, we've seen a decade in which no improvements were allowed other than sort of trying to dilute the impact of the of the act. Right. 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it, in Massachusetts, when we passed our version of the law, um, we were able to make improvements. You always have to make improvements. Laws are very imperfect. And um, and so you've got to be able to come back together and, and uh, yeah, make those improvements. And so that's what we need to do now as a country and keep taking the steps towards universal health care. We recently did a study of what charity care, nonprofit 501c3 tax-exempt hospitals were providing over the last couple of years. I mean, Senator Grassley from Iowa had forced through an amendment uh, because he thinks that nonprofits unfairly compete against for-profit hospitals. It's amazing to us that the level of charity care went down um, after the passage of the act when you would have believed that there was less demand because of the act, but therefore these hospitals might have been able to step in, particularly um, Texas, Arkansas, and Louisiana, where we were looking at the figures where people weren't covered. Um, are nonprofits really doing what they need to do under the Affordable Care Act, or is that something you followed at all, Rosemary? Well, I, I've followed that more on the coverage side, um, and you know, there's a there are nonprofit health insurers, and then there are for-profit health insurers, and um, I I'm. I'm a real fan of nonprofit health insurers, to be honest, because um, I think that does simplify some of the um, value proposition and that they are more inclined to return money, extra money that they collect um, to their actual enrollees and find better ways um, to get their, uh, you know, get their membership healthy. And especially during this time of COVID where we've seen um, health insurers actually profit, the for-profit ones have made profits because people have deferred other kinds of care um, as we await, you know, a vaccine for the coronavirus. Um, we've seen, yeah, uh, extraordinary profits amongst some insurers. And um, that just doesn't seem right at this moment. Rosemary, uh, how can people get your book, Marching Towards Coverage, and uh, tell people some advice there? Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of um, independent bookstores, and during this coronavirus crisis, um, they are in crisis because um, they don't get the foot traffic that they, they once did. So I'm, I like to send people to IndieBound um, that helps to um, keep uh, local bookstores open. We as authors need them. Um, you can find other ways to get the book. Um, it's audiobook. It's, it's really available in any way you like to get it um, through my website, rosemarieday.com. And through your website, if they want to continue the dialogue with you, is there a way, an info at rosemarieday.com or an There's, email? Yes, there is. And and you can sign up because I blog um, and I, I share my thoughts. I'm also on social media. Um, so you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram, um, all Rosemary Day. So, um, yeah, please come Fantastic. to my website and we can keep uh, keep the dialogue going. Thank you so much, Rosemary Day. This has been Wage World for another week, the world where the other half lives, where we talk about things you've never heard. And as Lucinda Williams sang, things you've never seen and will never forget. Wage World is underwritten by the Darrell Foundation, a progressive force enabling change based in Little Rock, Arkansas. As the song goes, we say it loud, we say it on the air, we say it on the radio. Until next week, when we'll have another guest, this is Wade Rathke for Wage World. Thank you.